Jeremy Hurowitz is the creator of Sell Like a Spy. He has over a decade of experience in sales and communication and is on a mission to show professionals how to improve their salesmanship and overcome challenges through the use of spy tradecraft. In this episode, Jeremy shares his expertise on sales and communication, as well as providing tips and tricks for gathering information in a discreet manner. He explains how mirroring, actively listening, and adopting personas and disguises can help you sell like the world's best salespeople. His strategies are inspired by spies whose livelihood depend on influencing people, building rapport, overcoming challenges, having better conversations, and getting information that is not easy to come by. When I was midway through college, I backpacked around Europe with my best friend. I was kind of, I fell in love with the continent and I had planned to move back after college, but um, I'm, a, I'm a musician in my other life. I'm, uh, I'm still very active with that. I tour and release records, a big part of my life and, and not to digress too much, but the multidisciplinary life that I think helps people connect with people better and be a better salesperson. But in any case, I uh, was playing in a rock band after college, was bartending at a local uh pub and someone came in and hired me to work on a DreamWorks movie uh, after a conversation. And I spent six months working on a film with Annette Benning, Robert Downey Jr. called In Dreams. And uh, that changed my life. I lost my band and I just decided, you know, now is the time uh, to go off and do the Europe thing. And I moved to Europe with a backpack and a guitar when I was 22 with a sense of adventure. And uh, I kicked around the continent for a while before settling in Prague, where I stayed rooted for seven years. I, I wound up working for a newspaper association called Project Syndicate, which was an extraordinary opportunity. And I got to travel all over the world. Um, I helped build that organization. I'm still quite proud of it. But I wanted to do more writing. I was writing the whole time. So I went to part time with Project Syndicate. Um, wrote a lot more and eventually moved to China and was based in Shanghai for a couple of years, closing out the uh, the decade overseas that I that I spent. Wow. So you've been pretty much all around the world and, and spent a very healthy time around the world. So when you were living in Prague and working on this project, what was that like for you? What were you mainly doing? Because obviously now you work in kind of sales and sales consulting, but there you were more so in journalism. So what kind of pushed you into the journalistic world? Well, I wrote for my college newspaper. I was a literature major. You know, I loved Ernest Hemingway and how he, you know, wrote as a, a journalist and he was writing novels. So, you know, I wanted to be some form of Kurt Cobain meets Ernest Hemingway. So that's what drew me <laughs> to it. But, you know, um, being a young guy and I needed to pay the bills in Prague, even though it was an extraordinarily, you know, cheap place to live in the late 90s. Beers were a quarter. Uh, still needed to figure out how to make a living. And, you know, I was too new to journalism to have a robust freelance life at that moment, or at least that's how I felt. So I found this budding newspaper association called Project Syndicate, and I got in, involved at a time when it was really changing, and I made an impact. I was able to go to a few different countries, and what we did at Project Syndicate was um, distribute op-eds by people outside the world of journalism, policymakers, heads of state, Nobel Prize winners, academics. And we got to those people through the three directors that ran Project Syndicate who were very, um, one was a writer, one was two are very well-known professors. So that was the forte. And we were creating a dialogue between newly liberated Eastern European, Central Asian countries and the West and, and vice versa. And they asked me to expand the organization. So, you know, a form of sales. And I was pretty successful from the get-go with it. 
got into grad school. They talked me out of going and said, we'll put you in charge of the whole organization and, you know, double your salary. And there I was, a 25-year-old guy living quite a life, I must say, in Prague at the time, enjoying myself. And I decided to stay. And I, I helped build Project Syndicate from uh, a few dozen newspapers in about a dozen mostly Eastern European countries to over 300 newspapers in over 100 countries by the time I left after nine years. Wow. So you were like pretty successful at a young age. Do you, do you think that, you know, I know this is, you know, obviously your life only goes in one direction. You can't go backwards. But do you think that was the right choice to be like, right, forget about grad school. I'm going to work at this paper type thing. Did it feel right at the time? I do. I do. And, and I appreciate you saying that, Sam. I, I, I think I peaked early. So, you know, what can I tell you? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, after I moved back to the U.S. and I was finding, you know, where I fit in, uh, I found that without that grad degree that I could have gotten, certain doors were just closed to me. Certain positions wouldn't consider you if you didn't have that master's degree. And I didn't get necessarily the network that people get when they get that master's degree. But, you know, I was going to go for international relations and journalism. And, um, you know, I, I say this with a sense of humility that life has taught me now that I'm in my 40s for sure. Um, I believe that I know just as much as anybody who graduated from, you know, SEPA or the Fletcher School or something like that, having lived and read widely. So, uh, you know, that's my feeling on it. And I didn't have the debt, too. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's also a bonus. I mean, going to university is, is one of the biggest debt events people come across, second only to buying a house, if you're lucky enough to be able to do that. So, exactly. yeah, most definitely. But you, you said there was a time when you were trying to kind of find your place in the world, as it as it were. And what did that look like for you? Because, you know, you've had this kind of decade abroad and now you're back, you know, home, shall we say. But you're, you're still kind of feeling a bit like, well, what do I do? What am I best at? Where do I fit in type thing? How did you go through that journey? Oh, well, I'm still going through it, Sam. You know, I, <laughs> I started my own business over COVID, left, you know, working directly for organizations. And I think that's part of who I am. Um, you know, actually, my music project is called Rootless. And there's a you know a story behind that, too. But I think it speaks to the sense of my... My, my journey, which is a continued one. But um, I think specifically what I was referring to was the fact that um, when I came back from China, I was trying to figure out, you know, where where it is I, I fit in. And uh, I heard about this world of corporate security, which attracts, you know, lawyers, uh, former journalists, um, former intelligence officers, law enforcement, special forces. And that world has always been intriguing to me, reading about it, reporting on it, brushing up against those types when I was overseas. So that's how I got involved in corporate security and kind of found a, 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 a home of sorts, if you will. Yeah. And the word corporate security is very, very new to me. So I'm assuming yeah. it's going to be new to our listener. What is corporate security? Yeah, that's a great question. And corporate security is a rather little known space that quietly influences global affairs and business in a huge way. And and corporate security is everything from kidnap for ransom negotiation, which I learned all about. I, I worked for the world's largest responder to kidnap for ransom cases, which I'm happy to chat about, to political risk advisory work, you know, advising Pepsi, you know, how to enter uh, a market in Africa and understanding the competition and, you know, threats from, uh, you know, local actors or terrorism, anything like that. So political risk advisory work, threat assessments, business continuity planning, crisis management, executive protection, which is kind of high end bodyguarding. But where and I worked on all of those things and I think I'm 
fairly fluent in all of them. But what I really came to specialize in is in corporate investigations, which is background checks, deep background checks into people, in, in, leveraging often human intelligence gathering, and uh, also fraud work. I did a lot of uh, work on Chinese fraud. So, or custom intelligence gathering, putting someone on a mountaintop with a binoculars in uh, Indonesia to count the number of trucks coming out of a mine, you know, things like that. Wow, that is there's so much there that we could dig into, but I'm going to kind of stick to the bits that stuck with me there. Sure. So you're, you're talking about breaking into new markets as well as, you know, potentially hiring new employees and doing extensive background checks on them. So I'm wondering, in this day and age, it's much, much easier than it would have been when you would have started this, which is, I'm assuming you said over COVID or was it earlier than that that you started doing this type of work? No, I started doing this work in, I think, 2008 uh, when I came back from China. So I've been doing this for, you know, uh, uh, quite a while now. Um, and but now I, uh, you know, I, I've done I, I've worked for some of the, the biggest, most recognizable firms. In the world in this space, I worked for a few boutique firms. I'm currently uh, a strategic advisor to a, a really reputable, one of the top firms in the space called Interfor International. Um, I do a lot of work with them, but I'm also, uh, I maintain my independence, which is really important to me right now. And I work as a subcontractor. So I will advise and work with people on investigations and on a variety of different uh, risk management issues, if you will. Lovely. Yeah, the, the field of risk management and, and like, you know, logical, critical thinking, decision making is really lacking in the working world, which is something you think would be, you know, a lot more prevalent. So I, I'm curious when you're, you know, looking to investigate somebody or looking to kind of do a background research on them, how are you getting information on them that they might not really publicly have available? What are the, the tools and tricks to find a fraudster or, or sniff out somebody who might not have the best intentions for your corporation? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I, I want to also mention that I uh, just published a piece along with the president of Interfor International on the George Santos scandal. So uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we have a congressman from New York who basically lied about his entire identity and managed to get himself elected. And the press is, you know, completely in a tizzy over this fraudster. And uh, we wrote about how, and I think you were alluding to this, that background checks and really digging in on people is something that lacks often in, in the business world. You saw this with FTX, the cryptocurrency company, where incredibly smart investors were just, you know, believing in this guy who, and there were a million red flags. And frankly, I've worked on cases recently um, where we were able to identify an exact same situation and help a, a, an investor avoid that. Um, but in terms of your question, a good background check starts with public records research. And the U.S. is the best country in the world at that for a variety of reasons. Criminal records are available. They vary. All of these things tend to vary state by state in the kind of the federated nature of, of the U.S., but criminal records are available. You can find a lot on people about bankruptcy, um, you know, other elements of their financial background. Uh, we have a robust media in the country, so you can do a lot of media research on somebody. And typically a good background check starts with, you know, identifying any potential red flags that happen there. Um, and either you go to, you know, what's often referred to as phase two, which is human intelligence gathering, which, you know, I now do a lot of myself. Um, or if the client is satisfied with the, you know, phase one research, then we stop there. But oftentimes, if you're, say, a private equity firm that's going to make a $100 million investment in a company and you want to retain the CEO, 
you might have spent time with that person. And of course, they're going to put their best foot forward and have you speak to people in their network who will say great things about them. But I get involved at that stage to speak to people who might be former employees they worked with or somebody that they had a uh, they were in, involved in a contentious litigation with. And I'll speak to them about their character, what they're like. But this industry is full of, you know, um, different ways to do that. You know, people you know, get in, go to somebody's country club and watch somebody play tennis. And, and if they, what are they like when they lose? Do they smash their racket and, you know, walk off the court in a huff or are they gracious in defeat? I would argue these are important character traits when you're hiring an executive that might steer a hundred million dollar investment. So I spend a lot of time um, speaking with lawyers, with, um, you know, senior executives about the value in doing deeper background checks and how to do it. Yeah. Character assessment is is so key when it comes to any level of employment. You know, who is this person at their core? Because who they are at their core defines who they are in the workplace. And there was something you mentioned about ransom negotiation. And I, I, well, the listener can't see this, but I can. You have a massive bookshelf behind you. And I'm wondering if you've read a book that I read last year that's been out for a while by a guy named Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference. Are you yeah. aware of this book? Of course. Right. Yeah. And in, in fact, well, if you want to make some point, I'll, I'll speak about it after. Oh, my, my point was basically about how it starts out with the with the ransom negotiations and how to kind of deal with these conversations and the way to frame the questions of, you know, how questions and asking why many times and trying to get that first, you know, no out of people because most people when they're negotiating, they're hoping for a yes straight away. And it's realistically the opposite to what you think negotiations go like. So I'd like to see what or hear what your kind of strategy was for ransom negotiations and that type of, you know, difficult conversations that can come, uh, come along. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a lot to say about that. And I, I've never met Chris Voss, but I know several people who worked with him. I've had the good fortune of working with two former chief hostage negotiators of the FBI, one of whom is named Steve Romano and has been a friend, mentor, and partner to me occasionally on Sell Like a Spy, and we work together. He's a really incredible individual. And um, so I met Steve and I met uh, the other uh, FBI hostage negotiator, Gary Nessner, who's quite well known because he uh, worked with Netflix on uh, the series Waco. He was the hostage negotiator involved there. He's written a great book uh, about hostaging, hostages and negotiating. He's a great guy, too. Um, when I first joined the British security firm uh, that I worked for, um, they were, I'm not going to get into their name right now, but they were the leading uh, specialist in responding to kidnap for ransom events. And one of the things they would do would be to train court chief security officers of organizations that have a significant overseas footprints and how to navigate how to keep their people safe and how to navigate a crisis in which one of your one of their people has been taken um being really curious about this world uh i raised my hand when they said they need volunteers to play act and deal with elements of those courses so you know they needed a meddling journalist to call uh you know call in and, and give a ask questions that was an easy role for me to play so i got to audit these uh, courses and spent a lot of time on these issues and learned all about Somali pirates and, you know, um, Nigerian, you know, oil terrorists and all of these different types. Um, and I learned a ton from uh, Gary and, and certainly from Steve. And now I leverage some of those lessons into what I teach with Sell Like a Spy. 
Um, it, to give you an example, uh, one of the things that I talk about is um, the world of mirroring, you know, the way you can physically replicate someone's behavior to shortcut the rapport building process, which is great. It's pretty widely taught in business. But what I like to get into and I call the varsity level of mirroring is verbal mirroring. And it's a really important tool in the toolkit of FBI hostage negotiators, because when you think about it, they are trying to build rapport with the person who has taken people hostage and get them to calm down. Um, and to your point also about negotiations, there's a relevant point here, slightly beyond verbal mirroring. They're speaking with somebody who's taken people hostage. This person is obviously upset in a bad place. It's always a man. Um, they are... Uh, frequently mentally ill. And, you know, the FBI hostage negotiator gets on the phone or walkie talkie with this person and they often are yelling and screaming, talking really fast. And there's something known as skills of social influence that the FBI spends a lot of time on. And the idea there is if you're dealing with somebody who's very angry like that, keep speaking calmly, keep speaking slowly. People tend to resort to the means if it's if if you're establishing a baseline. So FBI hostage negotiators are great at not taking the bait and keeping a level set and not getting upset about anything there. But in terms of verbal mirroring, you know, they have to establish rapport and get the, this person to understand, hey, I empathize with what you're going through and I want to see a positive outcome here. And so they mirror the language that they're getting. They'll use some of the same words back with somebody that they're speaking to. And in particular, they're looking for colloquialisms or pet words that they can repeat back to them. And I spend a lot of time working with clients on how to identify that and how to do it because physical mirroring and verbal mirroring can be a subtle art to learn because if you do it poorly, it looks like you're copying somebody or mocking them. So mm. it's it goes beyond the ease of what I'm just talking about here and you have to put it into practice. But um, it's a very valuable tool when it comes to negotiation and rapport building. Yeah. And um, we've kind of gone, you know, to the extremes of things of, you know, basically, you know, doing social engineering on people and figuring out who they are, as well as, you know, ransom negotiations and all that kind of stuff. But to bring it into a more kind of day to day or realistic environment where the average person might encounter this selling like a spy is something that you have kind of cultivated as your way of teaching people a distinctive way to communicate. And, you know, this is a way you can benefit from using things like mirroring and active listening to sell better or to better kind of understand your clients. Where do we start in order to sell like a spy? Do I need to get, you know, like a, a rain jacket and a fedora or is that a bit too far? No, nah, probably a bit too far. I think it starts with um, a couple things. It starts with first understanding that, you know, spies aren't, you know, the world of James Bond and Jason Bourne. Spies are extraordinary individuals who are typically extremely smart and have really engaging personalities. That doesn't always mean extrovert. There's a lot of really incredible spies who are introverts. They tend to be better active listeners. You know, they don't go through the alpha male thing that a lot of guys go through. You know, they're, they're easier. They're more neutral. They're, you know, great to speak to. Um, so it's recognizing that spies are, are, are more like elite relationship managers than they are like James Bond and understanding mm. that you know, and is, is a critical component. And then I typically start a lot of my talks off with the idea of connection. And, um, you know, there's a saying at the agency that spies convince, thugs coerce. 
And mm. what spies are incredibly good at is building rapport with an incredibly wide range of humanity. You know, I, I, I talk to people about how, you know, spies might, you know, like, and I'm talking about a CIA case officer, I'd rather say that than a spy, but a case officer might recruit somebody from the business world, you know, that might be an interesting target. And that might be somebody they enjoy having a drink with or something, but just as frequently, probably more, they have to recruit criminals or terrorists or diplomats from some terrible places that they would otherwise in their life not want anything to do with. And they have to figure out ways to connect with that person. And that, I think, is a really great place to start, Sam, because, you know, we meet people on a day to day basis and, and oftentimes we hit it off with them. And that's great. You know, it's really fun when you can connect with somebody. But just as often you might be neutral on somebody, you might not like them or you might sense they don't like you. But that might be somebody you want to influence and get to know. So how do you do that? That's where I start with people, the idea of connection and how to dig deep and, you know, leverage things like tactical empathy, you know, to, to put yourself in a situation where you're focusing on the good in somebody, the interest in somebody, rather than the way that, you know, uh, they rub you the wrong way or, or their values don't align with yours. Yeah. And before you can even get into that kind of, you know, almost judgment or assessment of people, I think there's a way, you know, where people forget the environment they might be in. So you said about, you know, getting a business professional into a bar or, you know, interacting with a criminal. If you brought a criminal to a nice corporate building, they're going to be less inclined to, you know, use violence against you most likely and all these types of things. So when we're selling, let's say we're selling, you know, in person, where would be, you know, an optimal environment to kind of get, you know, somebody not off their guard, but do you know what I mean, somebody into a more acceptable or receptive state to be sold to? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind there. And I don't uh, I don't want to give away the special sauce here. But uh, <laughs> one thing I will say is um, without going to massive amount of depth is is that I counsel people to flip the cliche that you can't judge a book by its cover. I say you can right. judge a book by its cover. You just have to be ready that people are contradictory. They have different sides. So if you're, you know, getting to know somebody, I don't think it's a bad thing to make some judgments based on, you know, a more superficial reckoning of, of what you're getting from them. Because people advertise who they are or how they want the world to see them pretty heavily based on their appearance and, and how they act. So I would say work on that. But you also, you know, you brought up, I think, again, the idea of skill, you know, the skills of social influence, because a criminal, as you noted, is not going to perhaps behave in a violent manner if you take them to a posh office versus, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, downtrodden, you know, bar or something like that. Right. So that culture and environment affects how we do things. And, you know, the point I'll make here is that I spend time talking with clients about how they should take careful note of that. I spend a lot of time on note taking, but I like to point out that if you walk into a client's office and it's Spartan and they don't have much put into how the office looks, well, to me, that screams out kind of value sell. You know, they're going to be thinking about budget. They want to get the most for their money. But if you walk into an office and they have, you know, a Rothko on the wall and, you know, gorgeous, you know, furniture and it's a beautiful view, I think that the premium sell is going to be what appeals there. You know, the best of the best. We have the best product or service to make you more successful. So that's what I call the atmosphere and intangibles. And I think it's a big part of uh, being successful in sales to note some of those things. 
yeah picking up on those discrete kind of unspoken parts of an interaction is is something that you're kind of touching on there so you know once you're in the room kind of read the room you know read the whole situation and, and then have a plan of attack or you know a plan of action from there so you're in there you've read the room a bit you're like cool you're mirroring this person you're actively listening so you're doing those those three great things but then you have to eventually you know respond or say something can you kind of give me an idea on how you can kind of adopt you know because event eventually once you do speak you have to have a persona this person would like or you know a personality this person would like how can you you know still be you but be a version of you that that person wants to buy from or wants to do business with <laughs> sam i feel like you're asking questions like as if you know all about uh my business in a great way i mean that because <laughs> there is a segment i'm gonna i'm speaking at a a conference next month in arizona the b2b market exchange and um i'm gonna be doing a workshop uh on something i call spies in disguise um right. because and it's really interesting because disguises is something you know hollywood glamorizes and changes a lot about espionage but spies do use disguises spies operate under cover stories. You know, this is a real part of it. And that workshop is about how to tweak your personality, to raise, you know, certain sides of your personality uh, to meet the moment or de-emphasize sides of your personality to meet the moment. If I go into that really fancy hedge fund and they're kind of dismissive, they're arrogant, you know, they're, they don't think they need me. Well, you know, it's, it's a low probability anyway. So my, my action there is going to be to cultivate gravitas, to have a stiff spine, to wear my best suit and to, and to probably start off with a, you know, an anecdote about how we made one of their peers a lot of money. So they have a little bit of FOMO and, you know, and, and demonstrate my knowledge and expertise expertise and not be kind of a cloying, you know, jovial backslapping salesperson, you know, and, and to be a little bit, Hey, take it or leave it. You know, I have something that can make you a lot of money and help you be successful, but I'm not going to, you know, kiss your butt here. And this is something you should be really after me to get a hold of. So I, I try to, again, we, as we discussed, read, read the room, trust my instincts, do my homework before the meeting, take in the atmosphere and intangibles. And, you know, as I'm, as somebody is talking to me and as I'm reading all of those things, I'm involved in um, what, what spies and FBI negotiators do, which is labeling. So I'm mentally thinking about what I'm getting from them. I'm saying this person is extremely arrogant or this person seems like they just really want to be friends and they want to tell me stories about their kids or something. And they're looking for, you know, someone who understands them, the motivations of that person. And I'm, taking, and I say this a lot in my talks, I'm taking the subconscious to the conscious because we all pivot to these different situations naturally. But if you can take the subconscious to the conscious level and make it a real concrete thing in front of you and act off of it, that's how spies are going to really focus on the right kind of recruitment. And that's how an FBI hostage negotiator is going to bring a difficult situation to a positive end. Yeah. And, you know, the, all these types of things that we're bringing together here are useful in day-to-day -day life, but most best used, you know, in situations where you want to have a result that's favorable to you, whether that's a sale or, you know, building a connection or that type of thing. I'm wondering if there's smaller things that people can, because we're talking probably on a level that most people will be like, oh, okay, mirroring, I'm going to you know, note that down. I'm going to do this and do that. What is something small that someone could do tomorrow or today in order to become almost selling like a spy, what is that thing that they can do? Well, you know, I, I think the best skill that you can have, whether you're a spy, a journalist, or a salesperson, is to be a, a great active listener. Um, one, you know, any people-oriented business, 
it, it, it's so special to be a great active listener. I, I, I always, not always, but I, I frequently in my discussions and my workshops ask people and I pause after I ask it to think about the best active listener they've ever experienced. And I later will tell them mine and people will pause. And I, you know, and I point out you, you have a positive, uh, you know, experience with that person, impression, and they of course do. I like to point out that, you know, a lot of times a great active listener is called a great conversationalist, but really they just mm. had the good grace to shut up and listen and make good eye contact. And good eye contact is key and steady body language, you know, and, and, you know, I talk about how Bill Clinton is famous for making the person he's talking to be, feel like the only person in the room that mattered. And it's a difficult thing to be a great active listener. And I, I go into a lot of detail about this, the behavioral science that talks about why it's so hard, you know? Um, so identifying some of those hurdles in active listening is a, is a first step towards committing to an active listening practice. And that's, that's key because you can't just flip a switch and be a great active listener. But, you know, to your, to your point, anybody can start tomorrow and just say, I'm not going to listen with an intention to reply. I'm going to listen with an intention to learn. And I think just saying that and and really focusing on on your whoever's talking to you and making sure they feel like they're being really listened to and make steady eye contact is a great first step towards having deeper connections and being respected. Because again, back to that theory of social influence with FBI, you know, to give to get respect, you have to give respect. And the best place to start is by making eye contact and showing that you're showing them the courtesy of listening and you're not just chomping at the bit to give your reply. And people can see that. They see the body language. They see you. And I talk about why that is. There's behavioral science behind that too. But people can see that jumpy aspect of your personality waiting to talk. And we forgive it because we all do it. But if you can ground yourself and be a calm, steady listener, and it's a challenge. And I share ways to put the conversation on a certain footing so that you can thrive. But that is a good first step to um, selling like a spy. Oh, I see. And, you know, there's that, that old phrase where people go, oh, people love talking about themselves. And you, you said that there was somebody who was a great active listener to you. I'm wondering who that is and yeah. why they made you feel so heard. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, my, my story there is that a while back, I was at a dinner with a colleague of mine who was a former CIA case officer, has now ascended to become a, a top person at one of these corporate security firms. And uh, his wife, um, they met in the field in the Middle East, and uh, she was extraordinary. And look, I, it has to be said, she was quite beautiful. I call her the young Gina Davis spy. Um, and bottom line is behavioral science also shows us that we're positively disposed to people that we find attractive. That's just human nature. But beyond her her looks, which and that's important, but beyond that, it was her incredible active listening, her enormous warmth and, and empathy that she demonstrated. Sitting next to her at this dinner, she made me feel like I was the only person in the room. She wanted to hear every one of my stories and had follow-up questions. And you know, she was just incredible. And after talking to her for 15 minutes, I would have spilled any secret that she wanted uh, because she had built such an enormous uh, amount of credibility as a listener with me. Yeah, I, I find sometimes when I'm speaking to people, they go, you know so much about me. I know nothing about you type thing. I'm like, well, that's just how conversations go sometimes. You know, we'll speak again type thing. But I think that's part of active listening is, is you know, giving people that time to speak. Because I feel like, like you said earlier, people kind of go into this backwards and forwards of I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something, rather than letting a story naturally reach its, you know, conclusion or letting that person get to their their thoughts about a situation, which is, you know, I guess everyone has a different kind of skill set when it comes to being an active listener, 
I'm curious what, what yours is. Cause I think mine is definitely like, I guess, question construction, which is getting, you know, like you said earlier, Oh, I feel like, you know, my business in a way that's, you know, a bit too in my business type thing, but it's, it's normally just, you know, active listening with an element of right. Okay. What's the missing pieces here? What would I like to hear? So I'm wondering what your kind of style of active listening is because there is no one right, right way to do it i believe yeah that's that's actually a really interesting point it's something i will be thinking about afterwards the different styles of active listening i'll have to give that a little bit more thought but my journey on active listening is um i have plenty of challenges in just grounding myself and doing what i just described for you i'm not some buddha when it comes to this like you know i'm <laughs> i'm an ex- pretty extroverted guy and i love telling my crazy stories of overseas life and my opinions on China and all of that. So I work hard at listening to somebody and making steady eye contact, making sure my body language is calm and making sure, and this is critical, that I'm taking in what they're saying and I'm not just thinking about my reply. You know, it's not a bad thing to let somebody finish and to then think for a moment before you reply and then gather your thoughts. I think it's really, it's a sign of a a deep thinker. I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who does that and how great a a trade it is. Um, so that's a real challenge though. So I, I'd like to think that my, my approach that I'm working on is, is patience and calmness. Yeah. Sometimes if you're silent in a conversation, especially in an in-person conversation, that little pause there, that person might add on an extra point or they might say something a bit extra or carry on with the story because believe it or not, most people hate silence in conversations. And so they want to fill that silence. Sam, I feel like, again, you've been listening in on my talks because one of the sections, <laughs> I, 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 a section on elicitation, there are different triggers to elicit information. And one of those is awkward silences. People hate awkward mm. silences. And they, as you noted, they'll frequently blurt out interesting things because they, they find it so awkward. So they'll tell you something in that awkward silence. So I counsel people when you're trying to get to know somebody and you don't want to pepper them with questions, you're trying to elicit information and there are many ways to do it, to be comfortable with awkward silences is one of the methods. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, this is my, one of my favorite subject areas, you know, with regards to kind of psychology and business is the kind of social engineering side and that kind of being able to deconstruct a conversation and build it in your own way. So as much as you feel like I've been almost stalking you, it's genuinely just like one of my favorite topic areas. And, you know, this is the type of guests that I love to have on because I can have conversations with them on a, on a deeper level per se, but referencing back to another interview I did a couple episodes ago, I wouldn't remember the episode number, but he was a corporate spy. So he's almost your like arch nemesis. You know, he's trying to get information whereas you're trying to keep information secure. So I'm wondering if you can speak on any interactions you might've had with corporate spies or your view on corporate spying. Well, you know, I, I actually consider myself something of a corporate spy because I'm, my, my role isn't just safeguarding information, it's collecting information. And I'll do some of the human intelligence gathering that I described earlier. We call it discrete source inquiries. So a client is doing a background check. They want to go beyond the public records. I get involved and I'll start making some phone calls. And, you know, one of the things that I think distinguishes uh, my work um, and the reputable players in this industry, and let's make no mistake, there are disreputable players in the corporate security industry. I'm not going to name names, but they're, you know, they've some of them worked on the Harvey Weinstein case and others that will do, 
you know, unethical things that I won't be a part of, such as pretexting, which means approaching someone on the street or a phone call and claiming to be someone you're not. That's not something I will do, right? I, there's gray areas that I will operate in, but I will not pretend I'm somebody that I'm not. Um, so one of the things I think that your uh, guest at that time was doing was was pretexting. And that's a big no-no in most of the reputable firms in the corporate security space. I don't, I, I've never encountered uh, this type of business that I list, I listened to that episode, as I noted to you. Um, and uh, I was a little skeptical of the big money made and some of the claims that that he had. Um, and and it, it just sounded like a little bit more of a freewheeling and, um, yeah, kind of disreputable side of that industry. The side that I work on, and, you know, again, I'm, I, I guess, something of a corporate spy, is a side of the business world that is a really important one that keeps people safe, that keeps information flowing, that sniffs out fraud, um, that is a really important side of making sure that business is done efficiently and ethically. Um, so that's how I would draw a bright line between the work that I've done, the businesses I work for, and have worked for in the past and how this person described his work. Yeah. And, and fraud is everywhere. People are always committing, you know, where, people always think fraud is stealing credit card details and this and that, but you know, fraud is mostly information and selling that information at a, at a price. And I'm wondering what the types of fraud that you've come across, because you mentioned earlier, there was that person who was able to be part of, you know, the political kind of, workings of America, but that wasn't his background at all. So I'm wondering what kind of fraudsters you've come across and how you kind of combat them or how you discovered them. Yeah, there's there, there's really so many. Um, and the George Santos case is just incredibly egregious. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, we worked on a, uh, I can't name it, but a, a, another cryptocurrency company that you know, is misrepresenting, uh, you know, what it's doing. So I'm very skeptical of a lot of the cryptocurrency players. But I think the best and most colorful examples to your question are the work I've done on fraud in China. Um, you know, you and perhaps some of your listeners will recall um, roughly, maybe it was a decade ago, maybe a little less, but there was um, a short seller uh, research company called Muddy Waters, and they exposed a Chinese company called Sino Forest, which was exaggerating its timber reserves to a large basis, and, uh, you know, which pushed up its stock price. And this Muddy Waters short selling research group was put out a report that drastically undercut Sino Forest and led to them, I believe they were delisted, and the right kind of short seller made a lot of money. Well, I had been kind of whispering in the ears of New York City hedge funds for years that I, I feel that China and the Chinese companies are uh, rife with fraud and exaggerate, you know, especially the public market players, you know, their their resources, their earnings. And all of a sudden, all of those people I had been cultivating and uh, you could say selling like a spy to came running to me. And it was the busiest I ever have been in uh, corporate security. You know, it was the only time typically in this business, you don't get a retainer to do the investigations, but a major high profile hedge fund put us on retainer so they could have first right of shorting every Chinese stock they could think of. Um, and the most colorful example, which I've told a lot, and I now see sort of regurgitated in certain forms and articles uh, around the web. So I wonder if it's become a kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of the folklore of the industry, if you will. Um, and I certainly still write about it. I, I'm, I have a novel that I've worked on, which is potentially being developed for a TV show. So um, and it features this particular story, which I'll keep brief. But we worked on a case I could mention now the company because it's been delisted. Uh, it was a Chinese company called Real Gold. 
They were listed on the Hong Kong exchange. I believe it was Hong Kong. It could have been Toronto, but I think Hong Kong. And they claimed to have three gold mines operating in Inner Mongolia. And this hedge fund felt that they were lying. And uh, we did the public records research. It was rife with red flags, you know, all sorts of concerning details. Um, but it was really when we sent a subcontractor you know, to the mines in Inner Mongolia, because anybody who looks like me or you would be kind of flagged in that part of the world. You want to send somebody who can blend in a little bit more. So this person went up to the mines. He found one mine indeed producing gold, but the two other mines were a sham. One was flooded with water. The other was totally derelict. And um, he really found an even, uh, you know, worse smoking gun when he went down to the village and the villagers said to him, oh, yeah, that mine. Well, they paid us to act like we were busy working at the mine and a bunch of white men in suits came to watch us. This was the banker roadshow before the public listing. And they faked those mines working to juice the, the, the listing. So we were able to give that research to our client who shorted the stock and did a PR campaign, which led to them being delisted. And they made millions, if not tens of millions. I don't, I'm not really sure, but that was a colorful example of fraud. Yeah. I mean, like I said, fraud is everywhere and fraud is happening at all times, but kind of jumping away from fraud and kind of back to what you just said in that little bit there, you said you wrote a novel. Is it out? Is it available? What's it called? No, I, I, I it's not out yet. I'm, I'm, I'm hunting for the right agent that'll help me uh, realize that. So if you or your listeners uh, are connected to any agents who are interested in, uh, uh, helping to publish the next really cool geopolitical spy thriller, they should get in touch with me. But it's called Link. Um, I've been working with a, a really incredible writer uh, who uh, has been done a lot of work in Hollywood named Kevin Human, who's now a Netflix producer. And we've been talking for quite a number of years now about developing this for TV as well. So um, it's a tricky world, both with books and TV. But uh, we think we have a really incredible story based on this this world of corporate security, which is not that well known, and then some very modern takes on uh, China and the U.S. Yeah, no, most definitely. If you look at most of the things that pop up on Netflix nowadays, it's things like Tinder Swindler and Fire Festival. People love a bit of, you know, up in the air. Did this person rob this person? Was it this or was it that? What was the true story going on? So I definitely feel like you're onto something there. So if any of the listeners are able to help Jeremy here, you know, get in touch with Jeremy, his details will be at the end of the show. But I guess my, my kind of next kind of observation of, of this conversation is, you have this great kind of skill for networking, it seems, because you've jumped in and around around the globe and been able to, you know, find employment and, you know, gainful employment at that. <laughs> How did you get this kind of networking skill? Were you like a popular guy in school or were you just like a really friendly person? Because you describe yourself as an extrovert, but extroverts don't always mean they have lots of friends. It means they just like to be out a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I guess I'm comfortable saying I'm an extrovert, but I also really like to be alone. So there's like, what is it? I think it's the Myers-Briggs spectrum. There's the you know, extrovert, introvert, where, you know, you're an extrovert, but you like to really recharge. Um, I think as I've gotten older in particular, I like to recharge even more. Um, but for your question, I've always been, you know, medium popular, not like the most popular guy. I think that I'm, I'm a bold person. You know, I'm not afraid to make waves. I'm not afraid to walk up to people and say hello. Um, 
you know, in different cultures. And, and I've leveraged that to my, uh, to my benefit. Um, I'm also fairly comfortable with risk in my career that hasn't always worked out great for me, but, um, I really like change. I like taking on new challenges. Um, and I think that that's led to a multidisciplinary career with some twists and turns that I think is really informing some of the things that I've been talking with you about today. But I think it's about being bold and not, um, and trying to not be scared about situations and kind of, you know, uh, fake until you make it kind of thing, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, being bold is a great thing. I've, I've literally speaking to another guest just before this about being confident and how to build confidence. And like you said, sometimes it is that simple as fake it till you make it. And then, you know, you'll find your way along the way, but something I want to ask you, and this is, this is not really a personal question, but it's more so a question that you might want to sit and think about, or if you have an answer straight away, that's fantastic. But I spoke to you about, you know, deciding not to do the graduate degree and going to do your journalism stuff. Was there another time, you know, past that time where you made a decision that, you know, by all kind of stretches of the imagination would be wrong? How did you overcome that? What did you do to kind of keep going? Because a lot of people, when they make a wrong decision, they beat themselves up about it and they let it affect them going forward. But I get a sense that you are a person that's always pushing forward and continuing on despite what might come your way. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm trying to think of a great example of where I made a bad decision, especially one that I'd be comfortable talking about on a podcast, right? But uh, yeah, uh, so I'm not sure. There's, there's not a specific example that's coming uh, up to me that fits those that criteria. I'm going to continue to kind of comb through my mental database a bit about that. I mean, maybe, you know, leaving a certain job, uh, being a little bit young, maybe being a little bit naive, uh, being I'm remembering being passed over for a job. Um, a, a promotion and leaving and that not being the best move for me when I think back on it. Um, but that's all in retrospect. It didn't dawn on me until a couple years later that it was probably better to not do that. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in the in the pushing forward thing. Even when I've had big personal setbacks or professional setbacks, um, and and I've you know definitely been guilty of wallowing in some of those moments. I'm always looking forward, and I'm always taking. Striding to take steps to move forward, and to me, that's really part of my crisis management, my growth philosophy of always looking forward and trying to turn the page and and build and grow. Um, I think that's I think that's the best I can do for you right now. <laughs> Lovely. No, that's a great answer. And on that theme of looking inwards and you know, kind of trying to see the best in yourself or, you know, do the best for yourself where you're at now in life is, you know, arguably a, a decent place, if not a great place. And I'm wondering what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? Oh, a lot of things. I mean, I love running my own day, you know, and, and, uh, the only person I really answer to is my wife, you know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, so those are great things. I get to exercise every day instead of, you know, having to make sure I'm keeping certain kind of office hours or something that's really important to me. I can pursue my music, which is really important to me. But, um, I think one of the things I really enjoy with, with sell like a spy is I have a, I have a section called use your superpowers where we talk about following your passion to find sales success. 
And I talk about this throughout my, or at many times in my presentation on that section or, or otherwise on connection and other things about how good spies are about being kind of intellectually omnivorous and understanding a lot of different aspects of life. And that, again, that multidisciplinary background, there's a saying at the agency, if you don't have a hobby, go out and get one or get several. And I really value, and this is to answer your question, coaching people and saying, embrace your passions, you know, like have, um, have hobbies, have interests, you know, like life, life can be hard. We work hard. And sometimes you come home and you just want to collapse on the couch and watch Netflix or a ball game. And I get that, but, you know, saying, you know what, I am going to, uh, get that scuba diving certification, or I really love historical fiction. And I'm going to really start reading a couple books that are on my shelf. All of these things help you lead a richer life and they will help you relate to people more. And one of the fun things I really enjoy doing is demonstrating how that will unlock hidden doors in your career that will lead to opportunities that would otherwise not be there. So I really enjoy trying to encourage people to live their best life in that way. I love that. I have a question for you that I haven't asked many guests, but any guest I see with a big bookshelf behind them, and I can kind of guess that they've read most of those books, <laughs> I'm going to ask them what their book recommendation is. So to give you an example of the kind of books we've had suggested, we had a book recommended called Who Moved My Cheese, which is a very thin, small book, but that changed my view on the world. So I'm wondering for you, Jeremy, Jeremy, what book do you suggest to me to read and to the listeners to read? that will give them some kind of experience, whether that's fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is. Yeah, I, there's one that was so great that I read, like I think it was about two years ago now, is a really wonderful author named Robert Kaplan, who's really an incredible writer on geopolitics. He's not afraid to ruffle feathers. Um, he He's really an extraordinary observer of history and international affairs. And he apparently crossed paths with this um, – humanitarian worker, this NGO worker whose name escapes me right now, but the book is called The Good American, um, referencing, you know, uh, the quiet American uh, of Graham Greene and the sort of the idea of the meddling American that's the Graham Greene book who goes to Vietnam and, you know, means well, but kind of creates problems. This is about a really extraordinary American who put himself in harm's way and focused on the work that he was trying to do in some of the most challenging environments in the world and how selfless he was and how intrepid he was and the extraordinary life that he led. And Robert Kaplan is just such a great writer with such a depth of knowledge and, uh, and context that the book is as good as any spy thriller and it's just a deeply engaging, rewarding and uh, warming, you know, heartwarming read in many ways. And I'm not a guy who goes into for heartwarmers, but it's, it's an inspiring read and you'll learn about it. And it's, you'll learn so much from it is, is, is what I'm trying to say here. So The Good American by Robert Kaplan. Where can the people find you online? My website is uh, selllikeaspy.net. So that's pretty easy. You can contact me through the website. Definitely encourage people to, to you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. If you, if you hear something I've said that resonates with you, I've had that happen. It's great to connect. Pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. My last name is spelled H-U-R-E-W-I-T-Z. Um, and in corporate investigations, you learn that people with really common names and spelling are kind of the hardest people to do checks on. So the slightly different spelling of my last name should make it easier. But I think those are the two places to connect with me. And I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.